it's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. Man Money is away today. But don't worry, I've got something special for you from my friends here at CNBC. Listen in. I'm Scott Wabner. Jim Kramer is off this week. This is On The Edge. Good to have you with us. Tonight's top takes. Big Bang Theory is a mega boom coming to the post-pandemic economy. Why so many CEOs are oozing optimism tonight. But what about the side effects from all that stimulus? Gamification nation from the GameStop mania to the Reddit craze. Now casinos betting big on the Big Apple. Is all of this getting out of hand? The Bumble Buzz, the young entrepreneur behind that company's amazing rise. And Miami Nice is the Florida playground about to become Wall Street South. We do begin tonight with raging optimism about the U.S. economy. The Dow hitting another record high today as the House finally passes the $1.9 trillion stimulus package. It comes just as CEOs say they're ready for a mega boom in the months ahead. So will they be right? And what about the fallout from all of that? Let's welcome CNBC contributor Shark Tank star Kevin O'Leary. Mr. Wonderful, it is good to see you. Do you share that optimism about a coming mega boom? I do, actually. The economy has made an amazing digital shift, a pivot. I call it America 2.0 over the last 12 months. You know, if there's such a thing as a silver lining to a horrific pandemic, it forced the economy into a new age where there's so much efficiency, direct-to-consumer sales, as we saw with Nike's numbers. They achieved in five months, which they said would take six years to get to near close 50 percent of their sales direct-to-consumers all around the world. And every S&P company is achieving savings in rent. 15% of my staff and my holding companies do not want to come back in the areas of compliance, accounting, logistics. They want to work at home. But the one I'm really giddy excited about, not so great for airlines, though, is we're slashing our business travel and entertainment by 20 to 50 percent across 36 companies. And I know every CEO is doing the same thing. If you want to travel anywhere for business, you have to petition it now. In my companies, 10-page plus an IRR, why I would ever do that, because we don't need to. We have a digital way to solve for that. I love America 2.0, which is why I hate the stimulus package. What a colossal waste of money. Yeah, well, you're on an island because the American public, Kevin O'Leary, likes the stimulus package. Some 70% surveyed in a Pew Research survey. Not only that, business optimism from the CEOs today, as we referenced, we could put it up again. The responses are off the charts. I mean, there's the stimulus plan optimism. Seventy percent are in favor. Twenty eight percent oppose it. I mean, it seems the only folks or the majority of the folks who oppose it maybe are conservative politicians. And maybe you put yourself in in that category. No, 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 no. This has nothing to do with which side of the aisle I'm on. Scott, help me. I'm making seventy four thousand dollars a year. You offer me a free fourteen hundred dollar check. I'm going to say no. Of course I'm going to say yes, but what a stupid waste of money. Giving people that are already gainfully employed money from a helicopter from the sky is just inflationary, and it's stupid. It's a complete waste of money. Okay, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Why would you do that? Give me one reason why that's a good idea. I'm going to tell you right now because of what the American Airlines CEO said. So, you know, you can comment on the other side. He told 13,000 employees, quote, to tear up notices of possible furloughs that they received last month. Why? Once the stimulus bill is signed into law, quote, we can happily say that all of our U.S.-based team members now have job protection through September 30th of 2021. That's why. Kevin O'Leary? 
Why would I give money to the airline? Why wouldn't I give money from the government direct to the employees after the airline goes bankrupt? Because 20 to 50 percent of business travelers are never going back to doing that anymore because it's a waste of money. And those are too many tubes in the air. The airline business is going to be about $89 tickets to Orlando, a crappy business. We have to let them go bankrupt. They're very good at it. I want to take care of the employees, but I do not want to bail out the airlines anymore. We don't need that many tubes in the sky. A That's a complete waste of money. Isn't there a cause and effect no, but to the both? Po- you save the airline, so you, in effect, save the employees. That's what the CEO of the airline is saying. I'm a taxpayer. Why do I have to save this or save that? Why can't the market deal them their outcome? Why can't we let the market be the market? The new America 2.0 doesn't need that many tubes in the sky flying people around that don't need to do it anymore. We go to a zoo. We do it digitally. We're going virtual. It's a waste of money to try and pick winners and losers. This bill is full of pork trying to pick winners and losers, trying to regain an economy for 2019. 2020 that doesn't exist anymore. It's a total waste of money. Look, I'm not the only guy saying this. It's nothing to do with politics. I can't stand inefficiency and waste. It's so dumb to do this. I totally agree. Give money to that employee, including those airline employees you talked about, Scott, and also give a trillion dollars to getting vaccines in people's arms, but nothing else to anybody else. We don't need it. The economy's on we're going to get 7-8% GDP. We don't need any more stimulus. This is wasteful. You have to believe that the stimulus plan and its, and its passage is part of the reason why you have such optimism from the business roundtable. They raised GDP no, forecast at no, 3.7%. No. It's got to be part of it. They raised their GDP forecast. Their plans for hiring are up 30 points from the fourth quarter. Their sales expectations are up double digits from the fourth quarter. They're optimistic for a reason. Helps on the way, No. No, not at all. We don't need any more help. You know that I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. We don't need that anymore. The economy is coming back in a new digital form. And all of those PPP loans from the first package, 60% were wasted. Anything we're giving to businesses now is a complete waste of money. There's so much liquidity in the global markets that if you deserve to live as a business, you can get funded. We don't have to fund losers and zombie companies and already dead companies anymore. That's what we're doing. Let the market be the market, Scott. This has nothing to do with politics. I'm really unhappy. I read the bill. Do I have to give $300 million to study how animals feel about COVID? I've already spoken to the animals. They're okay with it. I'm they don't sure, need $300 million. I'm sure that it's there pork. are things certainly to cherry pick, but we have on our wall right here what's actually in the relief bill. You've got $246 billion for unemployment insurance, $350 billion for state and local governments. You've got, obviously, the checks going out to reopen schools, $178 billion. Farmers are getting $100 billion. Restaurants, live event venues, they've been so decimated, Kevin O'Leary, throughout this entire crisis. Don't they need money? No, they don't. I don't know what the behavioral change has been across the market. We don't know yet how many people are going back into office towers, how many are going to go to a rock concert indoors. We don't know how many people are actually going to work away from the office or not. Let the economy actually readjust the new digital reality. And before we actually give money to all these businesses, you know, there's also a billion and a half to Amtrak in there. I don't want to cherry pick, but when you start adding a billion here, a billion there, it's real money. They haven't even spent the first billion we gave them. We don't know how many people are going on to subways anymore. They don't even want to go into the city to work anymore. Maybe they're going to stay at home, take care of their elderly parents. Why don't you just let it just settle out and then decide how much money we have to give? We haven't even spent on infrastructure yet, and there's billions in this bill for infrastructure spending. I mean, look, at the end of the day, 
Somebody has to put up their hand and say, why are we doing this when we don't need to? The economy is on fire, you Scott. Do it's raise, on fire. You do raise a legitimate question. And many people are talking about what are the side effects, so to speak, of what this second dose of stimulus Kevin O'Leary is going to bring, whether it brings runaway inflation. Lizzie O'Leary, the host of the What's Next podcast, she joins our conversation. Now, a little O'Leary-O'Leary debate. Lizzie, yeah, it's this O'Leary on O'Leary action. You don't think that we are going to have the kind of inflation that Kevin O'Leary suggests that we will? I don't think so, based on the people I talk to. But I also think, listening to Kevin, look, he makes some good points. I think people could find things in any bill that maybe they don't like. But a word I didn't really hear is people. There are things that we do know. We do know 10 million people have left the labor market. We do know 3 million women in particular have done that. If you even just look at labor force participation, where it was a year ago, we're talking 63.3%. Now it's 61.4%. There are so many jobs lost in that year-long time period. And all of that is deflationary. Moreover, I think what we don't know yet is what this sort of output gap is going to be. Obviously, this is something that people have been debating. Larry Summers has talked about it. I'm a little skeptical um, that we're going to see the kind of inflation that Kevin and others are warning about just because the, the deflationary forces seem so strong at this point. And because the Fed has very aggressively said, we are paying attention to this. It's not like this is a surprise to them. Mr. Wonderful. Well, one O'Leary to another. Let me point something out. I have nothing against giving unemployed people capital. I have nothing against deploying capital to get the logistics of vaccines out. But when the 10-year bond, which is the index of inflation, you can't deny that, goes from 90 basis points to over 1.5% in just a matter of months, it's telling you something. It's telling both O'Leary. It's telling you marginal things. If you look at break-evens... The bond market is not saying it is particularly frightened and inflation expectations seem anchored. You have the same thing from J.P. Morgan today. They say maybe there'll be some transitory inflation, but we're not talking about large percentages. You know, you're you're saying that because you don't own a portfolio of 10 year bonds. If you had owned them over the last 60 days, 90 days, you've lost a lot of money. Fixed income is way overvalued, but the point is you look at that as the canary in the coal mine. I don't read equity reports when I get on my Peloton in the morning at 5.30. I read the bond reports out of Asia and Europe. Because if you want to know where stocks are going, you look at bonds sure, first. But That's where the smart money Lizzie's is. Lizzie's right, duration though, isn't she? Isn't she right, though? I mean, it's not like the bond market or the stock market are going bananas over these fears of inflation. Mar- the Dow hit a new record high today. It's not like the 10-year is really off to the races. Okay, it's, I agree. it's adjusted a bit. I agree that bonds do not compete for stocks until the 10 years at 3%. But it's half the way there, is all I'm trying to point out. And it's not like it hasn't moved at all. But look, you can ignore all this. My big concern is, if you really believe in this economy, as I do, why do I need a helicopter spraying cash into the hands of people gainfully employed and all the other pork that, Scotty, you don't want to talk about? I've got a shopping list of garbage because I read that bill and I was stunned. I lost I, I nearly threw up on my shoes reading that thing. I don't know. You can't even dream up some of the stuff that's in there. It's a and complete yet, you know, waste Kevin, of money. I hear you talk about being up at five in the morning. And I have to tell you, as someone who has an eight month old in the other room, 
the working mothers of America can use the child care credit, can use the fully refundable child care credit, $2,000, $3,000. That's a huge deal when you are trying to hold down a job, even if you're still gainfully employed, and run Zoom school and get meals ready and get your kids out the door if you actually happen to have the privilege of child care at this moment. I think it is very easy to kind of fixate on some of the details here and not think about the human cost of this pandemic, not just half a million lives lost, but the lives that have been run completely off track and what that can mean for a generation of people, mostly a generation of working mothers. She's telling you to look at the forest, see the forest through the trees, Kevin. That's what Lizzie O'Leary is trying to tell you. I want to be very clear. I have no problem helping mothers raising children. I have no problem helping people that are unemployed or displaced by this digitization of the economy. But so much of this bill is going into the bureaucracy, which I know is incredibly wasteful and has been forever, and companies that we don't know if they should survive anyways. Why keep bailing out zombie dead companies when we've been giving that capital and just to, to companies that deserve to have it, you don't know which is a winner and a loser. My point is, I'm okay with the mothers. I'm kumbaya, but I don't want to waste money. And 50% of this bill is absolute crap. Lizzie, last quick word to you, and we're going to keep you around, but wrap it up here. Not at all 50%. you got to think about the 10, billion, 10 million people who need the money, not small percentages. All right, you guys stick around. We'll take a quick break after it. From stock trading to the slots, is America falling too much in love with hitting the jackpot? We're just getting started here. Coming up, Gamification Nation. A casino in the Big Apple would rake in a lot of dollars. But does it make sense? It's a split decision on the big business of gambling. Plus, after two years of turbulence, is now the time Boeing catches a much-needed tailwind? An American champion, back from the brink. And when the pandemic is past, will singles be desperate to mingle? Bumble founder Whitney Wolf just reported earnings. And she's our main character when On the Edge returns on CNBC. GameStop shares another wild ride today. Up, down, all around, halted at least seven times. It's once again raising the question of whether stock trading is becoming too gamified. Now there's word that three major casino companies are eyeing the Big Apple for their next big bite. In tonight's split decision, are we in danger of becoming a gamification nation? Let's welcome in Americus Reed. He is professor of marketing at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. Lizzie O'Leary, of course, still with us. Dr. Reed, it's nice to add you to the conversation. I hope you've been well. Is that what we are now? Are we gamification nation? You know, it's interesting, Scott. I think we are moving towards that because we need something that can elicit some joy, some positive perspective into our brains. And when you're gamified, it's very clear the research says that, you know, your brain lights up in particular ways that it doesn't when you're not gamified. So it's a it's a seductive from a consumer perspective, a very seductive uh, feeling to be in that mode of actually playing a game. And it has all kinds of implications with respect to uh, in behaviors. Feels like it's all around us now, Liz- Lizzie. The, the, the question is, is, has it gone too far? I don't know if we can figure out if it's gone too far until we've reached the end of the pandemic, because I am not underrating the appeal of fun. I, I did... 
uh, a story on GameStop and Wall Street Bets and the, the subreddit. And I talked to this dad in Arizona who was trading on Robinhood. And he said, look, I've been locked in my house for a year and I'm bored. This is why I'm doing this. So I think we might have to see how we are after we come out of this and sort of enough people have been vaccinated to know if we're clearly tipping over into, you know, complete gamification. No, I don't know if we're going to be able, Dr. Reed, to kick the habit. Uh, that, that's what this seems to be. <laughs> it sounds like you're saying as well, we're, we're kind of looking for instant gratification as a society. Yeah, instant gratification is the name of the game. I think the problem becomes, you know, when you're trying to think about is this good or bad, you're thinking about, well, you know, if we open up casinos, we'll get more money, we'll get tax revenues. So there's a there's a positive side to that in terms of putting money into the economy. But there is kind of a psychological side in this notion of habit, addiction, and perhaps individuals get involved in 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 gambling and things that aren't aren't really good for them. And so, you know, optimizing around the moral calculus around, you know, should gamification and casinos and all this kind of stuff be going on is a pretty complex and deep question. Yeah. Lizzie, I've got GameStop mania. I mentioned how many times that thing was was halted today in and of itself in a single day. Now we're talking about NFTs. We're paying a large sums of money for digital highlights of basketball players. What is going on with us? I may be too old to understand the NFT appeal. Like I was trying to like, do I want this non-existent thing that an artist has created or that Jack Dorsey is trying to sell me for his tweet? I, I don't think so. But but, you know, People are willing to buy it. There is, I think, as, as Dr. Reed is saying, like there's a market for everything at this point. I, I would say on the casino thing, though, there's some question about whether that revenue is, is long term a good thing. States that have gotten casinos have seen short term revenue boosts, but they don't tend to see them in the long term kind of flow of their revenues. Dr. Reed, you know better than most. You're, you're a marketing guy. You got to give people what they want. Right. Seventy percent <laughs> of New Yorkers support the casino expansion amid covid. And as, as you said, states and local governments are hurting so bad they're getting three hundred fifty billion dollars out of the stimulus plan. That's a pretty decent way to raise some revenue real quick from casinos in your backyard. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's an interesting analysis if you dive into it a little bit more with more nuance. I mean, there was an interesting article in The New York Post by Pat Smith who made the argument that one way to deal with the problem of, you know, is this good for society is to really create a market for super high end luxury casinos whereby the folks who come in pay a ton of money uh, to sit at the table and gamble. But it's kind of like a luxury sort of a thing where the, the everyday man and woman is not invited. But these rich folks, you can bring them in and, and let them play and take their money. Uh, and they're probably going to be a little less hurt, you know, in terms of any bad impacts that losses might have on their world. And so there's interesting ways to think about how you might try to handle the moral side of this. And I think we're going to see a lot of this sort of questions being asked from a gamification point of view. All right, Dr. Reed and Lizzie are going to stick with us, too. Up next, tonight's main character, the buzz around Bumble's CEO, Whitney Wolf Hurd. What gave her the edge to become the youngest female founder ever to take a company public? Welcome back. Let's take a look now at some of the personalities making headlines today. A blank check firm backed by billionaire Richard Branson looking to raise $500 million through an IPO. The Virgin Group Acquisition Corp. 3 will aim to acquire a company in one of Virgin's many core sectors, namely travel, financial services, health and wellness and renewable energy. Mr. Branson has raised hundreds of millions through SPACs, including Virgin Galactic. And speaking of SPACs, 
Watch out A-Rod, Shaq, and even Sammy Hagar. The SEC posting an alert to its website today. Quote, celebrity involvement in a SPAC does not mean that the investment in a particular SPAC or SPACs it generally is appropriate for all investors. They, the SEC, are on the case. Now, on to our main character. Bumble just reporting its first quarterly results, topping Wall Street estimates, issuing strong guidance as well. Stock was up after hours. The CEO and founder, Whitney Wolf, heard now a billionaire, the youngest female founder to take her company public. The dating app had its IPO last month, but she founded Bumble after an acrimonious departure from Tinder back in 2014. Joining us now is Nicole Laporte, who covers Bumble and interviewed Ms. Wolf Heard for Fast Company. It's nice to see you. Thanks for being here. You're going to tell us who she is, but she certainly is doing something right because the company seems to be humming and the stock is up nicely tonight. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I think what's what's interesting about Bumble and we're seeing it play out is that Whitney Wolf Heard's story is so wrapped up in the company. I mean, she founded, uh, I don't know if you mentioned, but she found she co-founded Tinder in 2012 and she was very much a part of that that app and getting it off the ground and promoting it on college campuses and a very acrimonious um, ending there. Uh, you know, she the she had an acrimonious fallout with another founder who had been a boyfriend and she ended up firing, filing a sexual harassment lawsuit, a discrimination lawsuit. And, you know, coming off that, she's talked openly about how difficult that period was in her life. And, you know, she's being attacked on the Internet. She thought her career was over. And out of the rubble of that, she really that's where Bumble came from. And that was the company that she formed in 2014. And Bumble, in many ways, has been her comeback story and her redemption. And I think, you know, when you think about what Bumble stands for, it's female empowerment, it's women swiping first. It's this kind of safe space amongst dating apps, so much of that I think came from Whitney's experience at Tinder. And so I think when you have that personal narrative wrapped up in a company, it makes it very powerful and it's really resonating with users. And now we're seeing it resonate with uh, with Wall Street. You make the point that she uses her own sort of personal story to sell Bumble. But I also find it interesting. You don't think that Bumble is going to be bigger than Tinder. <laughs> I don't know if I said that. I think they have they they have a lot of catching up to do. I mean, Tinder has a big head start, and especially internationally, it's it's gotten to a lot of territories before Bumble is. And you know, Bumble, the one challenge that it faces, especially when it's going global, is that you know it's 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 up against cultural norms. You know, there are areas around the world where you know it's not the norm for women to swipe first or women to have power. So they have that kind of extra layer. Of, of marketing and branding and tweaking their message a little bit, you know, depending on where they go. Whereas Tinder, I think it's just a much easier sell around the world. Um, so I think, you know, that is a challenge for Bumble. But I think Bumble, you know, Whitney talks a lot about Bumble being a lifestyle brand. And it has, you know, Bumble BFF and Bumble Biz, and they've gotten into brick and mortar a little. So I think you'll see Bumble expand in ways that go far beyond the the dating app itself. Whereas a lot of its rivals, really, that, that's all it, it's about is just, you know, trying to get users for that app. Yeah, I, I, think, I mean, obviously, she, she deserves as much credit uh, as she can get, right, for what she's done already to this point. I'm wondering what, what the biggest challenge ahead may be. Uh, you know, I think she wants to take the company international or maybe even, you know, uh, broader than it is already. Is, is that a challenge in and of itself? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as I said, those, those cultural norms when you're going into to places outside the U.S. is just every country is different. Um, you know, every area has has you know different different um, attitudes toward dating and towards women's roles. So that's definitely a challenge. 
Um, but I think, you know, they saw a great spike during the pandemic and they're expanding their video usage, for example. So I think you'll just see them sort of tapping different different areas within the company to 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 kind of force growth there. Yep. It's great hearing from you. Uh, Nicole, thank you. Helping us understand thank, our thank main so character tonight. That's uh, Nicole Laporte joining us. An American icon fighting to keep from falling off the edge. A pandemic, the 737 MAX incidents. Has Boeing finally bounced back? That and more straight ahead. Coming up, the pandemic made Miami a haven for many of Wall Street's elite. Are they keeping their Bermuda shorts? Or is it time to dust off the Brioni? The mayor of Miami joins us on the edge with more. Plus, Amid pent-up demand from consumers ready to take flight, what should investors make of Boeing? And as Roblox goes public, are you on the edge of entering the metaverse? The money behind living your life online, next on CNBC. Back on the edge, the Dow rocketing higher today, up 464 points. The Nasdaq did close fractionally lower. The best performer in the Dow, once again, Boeing. Shares flying higher again today on continued optimism over the company's order book and expectations of a post-pandemic travel boom. It's been an incredible comeback this week, marking exactly two years since the grounding of the 737 MAX following two deadly crashes. Phil LeBeau taking us on a trip now to see how this American icon has bounced back. The 737 MAX is taking off once again, but Boeing's business is still dealing with major challenges. Two years ago today, the second of two 737 MAX crashes killed 157 people, sparking a tumultuous period for Boeing. Two days after the crash, regulators grounded the MAX. Former Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg promised a fix in short order. He was wrong. Over time, more issues were uncovered about the MAX, and questions mounted. In Washington, Mullenberg was confronted with damaging details about development of the MAX. Relatives of victims killed in the crash demanded he be fired. By late 2019, Mullenberg was out. Enter Dave Calhoun, who shut down MAX production and did a complete reset on fixing the plane, and Boeing's relationship with FAA Administrator Steve Dixon. While Boeing was fixing the MAX, the airline industry was shutting down. A global pandemic caused traffic to plunge, raising new questions about Boeing's ability to withstand billions in losses. The MAX was finally fixed last November, but clearing out the inventory has been slow, and Boeing faces the challenge of an airline industry far from break-even. Phil LeBeau, CNBC Business News, Chicago. All right, that's our Phil LeBeau back with us now, America's Reed, Kevin O'Leary. Kevin, uh, we're ready to fly. We, we know that. The, the big question is, are we ready to trust Boeing again? You know, Scott, for years, Boeing was a core infrastructure holding for me with a 5% weighting in my portfolio. Then the max hit and all the challenges with that. I don't think the Boeing uh, buy or no buy decision is about the max anymore. I think they're the best engineers in the world for building aircraft. I, th- I think the challenge for owning Boeing is they're indexed with airlines, because that's their customers. Although they have a very buoyant defense business, and they have a software subscription business, part of the Boeing model is when you buy a plane, you, you subscribe to get upgrades for the firmware, which I love that part of the business. 
But what I'm worried about for the airline industry and for Boeing as an investment and why I uh, don't own it today, which is, uh, you know, for all the years I owned that, that was one of my best performers. I actually won the stock challenge on CNBC a few years ago. Just I remember Boeing. that. 2018, yeah. I think you did and ride Boeing all the way to the top of the, the stock draft challenge. And, and I, won't, I won't forget that. I cherish that award. It was a wonderful day. But, you know, it, it's, it's like a Carol King song from Tapestry. It's too late, baby. It's too late because uh, they're indexed with airlines now. And, and what I'm trying to figure out, because a lot of people put airline stocks in the value play. But when I watch what's going on through the S&P and the policies being put on business travel, given that we've now proven using digital technology that you don't have to go anywhere to do business. You don't have to go internationally. You don't have to go domestically. And I'm not saying people don't travel again for business, but let's say 15 or 20 percent don't. I don't know what the metric is because I don't know yet what the new economy looks like. We should figure that out by Q2 of next year. In my companies, we are uh, cutting back 20 to 50 percent because we just don't need it. I don't need to go to Bentonville anymore to sell Walmart well, a new product. The, I know, the, I know the stock that. market is saying that it is, in fact, not too late. And, and Dr. Reed, I, I want to know from you, can you successfully and how hard is it to successfully market your way back from a disaster, which is, in a sense, what Boeing has to do? Well, there's two levels of analysis here, and I think Kevin's touching on one part of that analysis, and that is the fact that you have Boeing and Airbus. There's basically only two places where you can buy a plane, uh, two shops to buy planes and Boeing and Airbus. And so they're selling into the airlines or leasing into the airlines. Uh, so there's a, there's a, what is the brand doing with respect to this business-to-business kind of transaction that happens? And then the second layer of that is what is the, what is the brand doing in terms of the airlines to the end consumer? I can tell you the end consumer does not care about the brands of airlines in the sense that the, the travel websites now basically have eliminated brand and basically put price and schedule right in front of you. And so unless you're a Southwest Airlines or maybe a JetBlue, it becomes very difficult to stand out in what is essentially a highly commoditized market. So the question as to whether or not the brand itself will be viable is a question that can exist at two levels. I think the B2B analysis will prove itself out in the sense of the brand crisis that was handled by the the, the new thought leader that stepped in and tried to address some of these issues. But you got to keep in mind that uh, that people's memories about even catastrophic events are, are quite short. And the brand actually is able to to move move forward and be okay, especially as Kevin is saying, if, if the the engineering level and the level of quality is as high as it is. I also wonder, Kevin, because of the pandemic and there's so much pent up demand, and we're all waiting to get on an airplane and, and go somewhere for a leisure trip. If what we cared about before, we don't care so much about now. We just want to get out. We're not going to look to see what make, model, and whatever the airline is that we're on. Scott, I totally agree with you. But the problem with that business, it's a horrible business. That's an $89 ticket to Orlando. It is the worst margin business for airlines. Those are tubes. They're basically buses transporting people at the lowest cost. Break-even analysis is maybe you get a yeah, tiny margin. Yeah, but Dr. Reed nailed it, though, didn't he? He nailed it earlier. He said it's a duopoly, right? There are only two. There are only two, Kevin. Why do you think the stock has recovered the way it is? There are only two. No, it has recovered. It, it has recovered. But the question is now, we don't care about the past. We're making an investment decision today. Do I allocate to Boeing? Do I allocate to airlines as a value play? And I argue you don't have to do anything. You can sit and wait and see how this plays out because all the profit in airlines, including the people that buy those Boeing planes, is on business travelers at full margin, first class business travel. But I think what we have now is big buses of holiday travelers. You just said it yourself. You can't wait to get out of here. 
And you're going to go online and say, I can save $8 by booking this travel trip. I can save $9 over here. It's eight, everybody is going to pay $89 to go to Orlando to Disneyland. That's it. Nobody in my companies is flying for business. Why? I'd rather take that margin right into my pocket. I don't need anybody to fly anywhere. Well, so I'm saying if you're flying anywhere, you, you, you write me a 10-page essay on my internal rate of return for why you're going to Chicago to meet a client when you know you don't have to. You can Zoom a call. You sold them all year, the same product. We're killing it. Cut, 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 slash, hack, burn all that travel. I don't need it. And that really hurts the airlines long term. Well, I and mean, Boeing. look, Doc, Dr. Reed, I'll give you the last word. A new report, in fact, tonight, Boeing near a deal to sell dozens of 737 MAX jets to Southwest Airlines. So there's still demand and there's a scarcity factor that we need to discuss, too. Yeah. And I think the other thing to sort of counter a little bit what Kevin is saying is don't underestimate the power of what is gained from commiserating with people on a business trip to go somewhere and actually be a part of that social piece, which is very difficult to replicate in a, in a virtual world. So a lot of folks are saying, you know, I miss that camaraderie, that hanging out, that, that being in that spot with that conference, immersed in that, in that environment. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate that if I, if I were uh, thinking about this analysis. Dr. Americus Reed, I appreciate your time so much. Kevin O'Leary, it's been fun. We'll see you both soon. I hope on the edge. All right. Miami stealing away Wall Street's elite, but will back to normal send everyone back to the boroughs. The Miami mayor joining me next for our war of words. We're back on the edge. Fifteen minutes away from the news with Shepard Smith. What can we look forward to, Shep? Well, Scott, one year ago today. This is the week that marked the time that COVID shut us down. As millions of Americans roll up their sleeves to get vaccines, we'll take a look back in the next hour at how the pandemic changed everything. Plus, Congress today passed the COVID relief bill, in fact, just hours ago. But will it actually help bolster America's hurting middle class? And reports of troubling violence against Asian Americans, they are not slowing down. How community leaders are expanding their patrols to meet hate head on. Top of the hour. The news just minutes away, Scott. And we will be there. Shep Smith, thank you very much. All right. Here's some stories keeping us on the edge of our seats tonight. Another major, would you believe it, another major hack this week and one potentially more dangerous. A group of hackers saying they breached security footage collected by the Silicon Valley startup Verkata, gaining access to live feeds of 150,000 surveillance cameras in hospitals, companies, police departments, prisons and schools. One of the companies exposed includes Tesla, which had more than 20 of its cameras hacked. Are the small Apple products losing steam? The company reportedly cutting production for iPhones by 20% due to low demand for the iPhone mini. Now, overall, the company does still plan to build more than more phones this year uh, than compared to 2020. GE is finally winding down GE Capital, the once giant American conglomerate working to reshape itself. GE will sell its jet leasing business to rival Aircap. That's a deal valued around $30 billion. Following the deal, GE Capital will be folded into the larger corporate structure and will no longer be broken out as a separate unit in financial reports. Well, as the race to vaccines pick up speed and companies consider their own back-to-work strategies, another major corporation says not so fast. Amex announcing it will continue to allow its employees to work remotely and hire talent in cities where it doesn't currently have a presence. One area in particular that's attracted the attention of more people and financial firms, Miami. 
Here now to discuss what trends that city is seeing and whether it could be the new Wall Street is the Miami mayor, Francis Suarez. Mayor Suarez, it's good to have you. Thanks for being here. It's good to be with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. We know, obviously, that people have moved to Miami from New York. I have friends who, who did just that, companies too. The real question is, will that trend continue post-pandemic? We believe it will because the fundamentals of the reasons why they're moving haven't changed. And that's number one, that they feel that the tax regime in the places that they're leaving is incredibly excessive and out of touch. Uh, in addition, a lot of the cities that they're leaving from they feel that their leaders don't embrace innovators and creators. Uh, and so we have taken a, a, a diametrically different approach. I started the How Can I Help campaign from a tweet that said, what if we move Silicon Valley to Miami? And I think the fact that as a leader and as a mayor, I'm embracing innovators and creators of high paid uh, jobs in our community is something that's a counter narrative to what we see other elected officials doing nationally. And I think that is something that is making people feel welcome. In addition to the incredibly gorgeous weather that we have, the tax structure that we have and a density that we've seen uh, take root here because of remote work and because of COVID, we have the perfect conditions to emerge out of the pandemic as one of the strongest cities, not only in America, but in the world. At the same time, there's some data I'd like you to react to. The United States Postal Service says not as many moves, in fact, as we thought. Last year, 2,246 people filed a permanent address change from Manhattan to Miami-Dade County. 1,741 went to Palm Beach County. Together, they account for 9% of the out-of-state moves from the borough, and that's up up from 6%. So not a huge jump. And at the same time, I saw another study that said the people who did move are already looking to come back to the Big Apple. They like it here. Yeah, I, I would I would certainly uh, have a, a, a disagreement with that. First, uh, you should look at the number of flights and, and whether or not people are flying uh, to New York or flying away from New York uh, to Miami. And you'll see that there's double the number of flights to Miami than they are uh, to New York. And I would also say that you know, the people who are moving here, uh, by and large, continue to move and are bringing not only themselves, but their companies. Just yesterday, I got a text message from somebody that's uh, moving a $20 billion hedge fund uh, to Miami. We continue to see major players, some of the, the ones you've announced, Blackstone, uh, you know, Colony Capital, Starwood. Um, and the list goes on and on of people who continue to move here. Look, I think New York is panicking and I understand. I get it. Um, when uh, you don't have a way of reversing the tax regime. When you're not, uh, you know, as safe a city as Miami is, and when you have a, a variety of, of people pushing away the innovators, they have to come up with a counter narrative that stems the tide of, of what's happening in Miami. But do you do you have? Let, let's say you're right. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, and it comes to fruition as you you think it will. Do you have the infrastructure to deal with an yeah. influx of of not only people but the amount of business you think you're going to get? Not only do we have the infrastructure, we're the only city that has the infrastructure. Um, we're the only city that can grow. We can actually grow 10x in terms of our development envelope, number one. Number two, we're focusing on on the most innovative transportation solutions. I'm actually going uh, next week uh, to Las Vegas uh, to see the boring company that's uh, uh, built by Elon Musk uh, to, to look at a variety of different underground tunneling solutions for a mass transit in our city. Uh, we're a city that's uh, you know, focused on developing affordable housing. Um, we're the only city that can actually grow uh, over the next five to 10 years and keep our housing supply up so that our prices remain low. 
Um, so I just don't see any other city having the ability to do that. Uh, in addition to that, we have a cost of living differential that's almost three to one when you consider New York versus Miami or San Francisco versus Miami. So I just don't see how they're going to bridge that gap. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I love Miami, but I love New York a lot. Last question. Give us an update quick before I let you go. Where are you on your vaccines? How are you progressing? We're progressing very well. I think uh, the state of Florida is one of the states that is outpacing uh, most of the states in the country. Um, because of that, we're seeing our hospitalizations down uh, under, uh, I think, 700 in, in Miami-Dade County. might actually be under 600 at this point. Our, our new cases are down, and our percent positivity is down into the 5% level, which is the lowest that it's been in months. It's good to have you on tonight. A cheerleader for Miami, as you should be. Mayor Suarez, appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, Roblox debuting as a public company today. Why the gaming platform is thinking beyond games and focusing on the metaverse for its 200 million users. We'll bring you the cutting edge next. Back on the edge tonight, the next big thing or the next big flop? This is the cutting edge of business. Tonight, step into the metaverse. Roblox went public today, betting that its gaming platform will become so much more. The company wants to be your virtual world, a place for socializing, entertainment, even business deals. CEO David Pazuki was on Squawk Box this morning. We're in a whole new category. We sometimes call it the human co-experience category. Some people refer to this as the future metaverse category. It's a unique category because it allows people to come together, even when they're not together in real life, and do things together. All right, here's the key, though. If you want to live online, you need an avatar. All right, so the, the producers gave this a shot. Take a look. We'll see if this is the future. They better have used enough Robux on me. This is my avatar, allegedly. So I don't know. It looks it looks all right here to break it all down. Ari Levy, he is CNBC senior tech reporter. It's good to see you uh, on the edge tonight. What is the what's going on in the metaverse? Yeah, good to see you, Scott. Uh, What's going on in the metaverse? So uh, tons and tons of kids are hanging out on Roblox, the metaverse, um, playing any one of millions of games where they virtually adopt a pet or hang out with their friends in a theme park or uh, shoot down the bad guys or, you know, come up with uh, a restaurant idea where they're cooking up stuff uh, in the back. Um, it's a place for them to socialize. Uh, they text back and forth. Some of them hop on another screen on Zoom while they're doing it um, and come up with these 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 experiences that uh, you, that they can't get in the real world in general. And they certainly can't get now because they're not doing anything in the real world. So with schools closed and sports leagues shut down, uh, Roblox is where a ton of kids are spending their time. Okay, well, you give me the natural next question then. What happens when we go back to whatever normal is and we get on with the rest of our lives? So, you know, Roblox is projecting still a healthy year of revenue growth for 2021, but a much slower year for user growth. Uh, Six to 12% user growth after, uh, you know, basically doubling last year. Uh, while you know 50 to 60 percent revenue growth, which suggests to you that they're going to do to do many more things to monetize their existing user base. Uh, so you know they, they have a subscription feature now where you can buy 
uh, a number of Roblox, or, sorry, uh, Roblox a month, um, typically using your parents' credit card. Um, that's a way to, to have sort of a stickier product. And then they're also just trying to roll out different types of experiences, whether it's these virtual concerts they're doing, like what they did for Little Lil Nas X, um, and and parties, events, uh, all sorts of things. So it's it's less of a gaming experience and more of a you can come on at any time and create your own world uh, in, in really any capacity you want. All right. So what about competition? Because what is Roblox today can be Fortnite tomorrow. If you have kids, you know that's the case. Yeah, competition is always heady in in the gaming market. Uh, and, you know, Minecraft is probably the closest to rec competitor, uh, given the, the age, given the demographic and the way that you kind of build these worlds and navigate these worlds. Uh, you know, S- Scott, you're in the world of, of following stocks and valuations. Roblox is being valued like a high growth cloud software company, not at all like a gaming company. It's being valued at many multiples in, in terms of its revenue multiple, many times what a gaming company would be. So this is viewed as a platform uh, where where kids and increasingly older people are going to be spending time for entertainment. Um, you know, if you talk to investors, they think about it as like the next generation Disney more than a gaming company. Um, so that's really the the competitive advantage versus a gaming platform or, or a, a gaming site. That's Ari Levy on the edge with us tonight. Thank you for that. All right. So you've got the edge on today's trading. But here's what we're watching for tomorrow. The Dow closing at a record high today as worries eased about rising prices. But the tech heavy Nasdaq ended lower yet again. It was a wild ride for that session. Plus, tomorrow marks one year since much of the U.S. entered coronavirus related lockdowns. In a world changed by the pandemic, we'll focus on what's to come. And how much do we really need sports? Some say they're a balm in these unprecedented times, but one sports writer says America doesn't need sports after all. Jamel Hill, the outspoken Jamel Hill, joins us tomorrow. Can't wait to talk to her, get her hot takes. That is tomorrow's Edge tonight. Thanks so much for watching On the Edge. Look forward to seeing you back here at 6 o'clock Eastern.